welcome to our Transgender School podcast. We're here to talk about diverse transgender identities and experiences so that we can all be better allies and advocates. We'll also discuss current events, welcome guests, and share actions you can take to support trans people. I'm Bridget, and my daughter Jackie came out as a transgender woman about four years ago when she was 19 years old. I was totally unprepared, but I have learned a lot since then. And now Jackie and I are passionate about sharing what we've learned. When I came to terms with being trans, I realized that I absolutely needed to transition, but coming out was very stressful. Now that a few years have passed, things have gotten somewhat easier, and I want to help other trans people navigate their own unique experiences. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of the Transgender School podcast. This will be coming out exactly two years from our very first episode. So this is our February 2023 episode, and our very first episode ever was in February of 2021. Jackie, it has been a wonderful two years, and I thank you for doing this with me. Yeah, no, I I think it's been a great experience and I've been really impressed by how many people we've been able to reach, the impact we've been able to have. And I think that the sky's the limit. But I think that that's also a good segue into our topic for today, which is kind of getting back to the basics in some ways, talking Mm -hmm. about words that can hurt and educating people a little bit about um, things they should or shouldn't say to uh, or around trans people. Exactly. Thank you for introducing the topic so nicely. And I just want to share with people that I kind of love the combination of what we both bring because your world is politics and my world is communication and teaching people communication skills as a former communication professor and a consultant and a coach. And those are, I think, two of the most important concerns in how to be an ally, which is a lot of what this podcast is about, right? Is how are you supporting the political agenda and political candidates who are the greatest allies to transgender people and who want to to promote progress for transgender rights and then communication, the everyday kinds of choices that we make that are either affirming or can be very disaffirming or triggering and traumatic for transgender folks and gender fluid folks and non-binary folks and, and all of really all of the LGBTQ plus community. So today we're coming back to communication, which would you like to talk about too? And you know a lot about too. And I also learn a lot from you about politics, but I just wanted to kind of call out that interesting mix and blend that I think we bring that is always fun for me because there's always so much more for me to learn from you. So I wanted to start at least, you know, this can go a number of different ways, but I wanted to start with what I see as everyday words that we are not suggesting are bad words in and of themselves, but words that when used in the context of talking about a transgender person's experience or transgender people in general can be incredibly hurtful and harmful. And I wanted to share a couple studies on how important this is. First of all, so the why, just before we get into the what, according to the Trevor Project's 2020 National Survey, transgender and non-binary youth who reported having their pronouns respected by all or most of the people in their lives attempted suicide at half the rate of those who did not have their pronouns respected. So the power of what we're talking about cannot be overstated. There's also a wealth of important 
research and findings in the Family Acceptance Project of San Francisco State University. The links will be in the show notes in the description. And they found that high levels of family rejection for LGBTQ youth, and of course, rejection comes usually in the form of communication, right? The things that are spoken and the, and the feeling that people get. So when there were high levels of rejection, there were six times increased risk of depression, more than five times increased risk of suicidal thoughts, eight times increased risks of suicide attempts, three times illegal drug use, three times HIV, STD risk. The consequences of not being affirming and supportive in the way we communicate and and affirm the transgender person's identity as well as their knowledge of who they are and what they need. And of course, when there are high levels of support, which comes largely through communication and of course, affirming and supporting medical care that's necessary and helping with access, but all of the benefits were Again, astounding, staggering difference, better health, less likelihood of depression, three times less likely to think about suicide, three times less likely to attempt suicide, less likely to have substance abuse problems, high self-esteem, social support, better family relationships. So all of the outcomes are quite profound and meaningful, and they've been studied in a lot of depth. Anything to add? So I just I just had to take that couple minutes to say why it's so important, because I think a lot of people out there will say, oh, well, I use affirming language, but you might be surprised by some of what we're about to share, because I've learned a lot of it the hard way by making these mistakes, and I still hear people who claim to be allies and who want to be allies making these errors, which can be very harmful. What do you think, Jackie? Yeah, I think you did a great job of highlighting just why this language and the words we choose are so important and the real world impact of that language, trans people. And so with that, I think we can segue into some examples of words that can hurt when used in reference to gender identity or trans experiences. A big one, the first one that comes to mind is choice. None of this is a choice or a preference. People will say, oh, when you decided you wanted to be a woman or mom, I know people will say to you, my friend's daughter chose to be a boy instead of a girl or chose to be a girl instead of a boy. And I understand that is how some cis people will naturally be inclined to think about it. But I I don't think that's correct. I think people are who they are and they um, don't always know who they are. Sometimes it takes a while to figure that out, but it's not a choice. Um, Most people today, unless they are like active adversaries of the community, wouldn't say when he chose to be gay or when she decided she wanted to be a lesbian. Um, But there is a little bit more flexibility for some people around saying those things about trans people still. So hopefully we can uh, make progress on both fronts. Thank you, Jackie. Perfect. So the word choice, there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself, but in reference in any way, shape or form to a transgender person's experience with their identity, it's not appropriate. Do not, please do not use that word. It can be very harmful and hurtful. And along those same lines, anything along the line of wanting to be or choosing to be, it's not appropriate. And I think where people might get confused is that it is a choice what you do about that, right? It is a choice to determine what's right for you in terms of transitioning socially, medically, you know, what you might choose to do to be in alignment with your identity but it is not a choice ever to be to be anything under the spectrum of LGBTQIA+. Okay, so again, maybe surprising, an everyday word, but it's one we want to avoid in these conversations. The next big one, which is similar, is change. 
I understand how this can be confusing when it comes to trans people, but people do not change their gender. I regularly hear this, like when you change your gender, when you change from a boy or you used to be a boy and there is a transition, like obviously there's a transition and there's often a medical transition or social transition and those things can overlap to varying degrees. But it's inaccurate to say that trans people went through a gender change. It denies the reality that, you know, we were always that gender and it's just a matter of reflecting that in who you are and how the world perceives you. Um, and there are some articles, there's from the article that you were citing, there are some things about ourselves that we can change, that is to transform or convert. You can change how you express your gender, such as choosing to wear something traditionally coded as masculine, like a tuxedo, or choosing to wear something traditionally coded as feminine, like a dress. Whether you wear a tux or a dress may influence how people interpret your gender, and it might bring joy or embarrassment, but clothing alone um, usually does not change your inner sense of gender identity or who you're attracted to. Exactly. So Jackie did not change her gender. She was always female. And this is also why, well, I don't know, we didn't have this in here, but I'm curious what you think. You know, some people will say designated male at birth or assigned male at birth, designated or assigned female at birth. And and that's changing too. But what from what I understand, that's more appropriate because basically that's it. A doctor assigned you or some medical professional assigned you a gender and they were wrong, right? So that's the only, the only association with a male gender that you might possibly use in reference to a female person that that's what they were assigned. But other than that, like for you, it's from conception, from your existence, from knowing you existed. We talk about you, even when I was pregnant with you, we will say she and Jackie, and we'll talk about you as a girl. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think what people are really talking about when they say assigned at birth is, I mean, they're really talking about your your physical body and I mean, really like your genitals is what it comes down to and your like reproductive organs. And, and I Unless you're intersex, generally, that's that's how a lot of cis people who talk about, you know, changing your gender think about it. And I, I don't think that is, I think that's a very narrow view of it. And I don't think that's really correct or the right way to think about it, because it's a lot more complicated than that. You're assigned certain body parts, but you're also assigned a social role based on those body parts, which is a whole other thing that that we don't have to assign to kids. You can't get around the body parts you're assigned. You know, you have to, that's the hand you're dealt for better or worse and you can make changes, but you don't have to be assigned a, a gender role from birth. That's something that parents do have the power to change for their kids. Yeah. And, you know, this, uh, we were, I had this later in our notes, Jackie, but it kind of makes sense to bring up now. And I moved it in the notes. If you're in there, this, the term sex change operation. And that's a term I grew up with. And, but it is, I just realized it's related to this idea of changing, right? Changing your gender. And so now that we talked about using the word change, which we recommend not to use at all in reference to a transgender person, you can see why sex change surgery or operation is very problematic. You know, I think some of this is generational. I think some people in my generation, that's the only term they know. And they might think they're being supportive by asking me, for instance, I've definitely had people ask me, so is Jackie going to have a sex change operation? And I just cringe because they mean well, but they don't know, right? And so first of all, you're not even supposed to ask, right? It's nobody's business, unless you're going to ask everybody about their genitals, or you're going to ask all people, all parents about their kids' genitals, then we shouldn't be asking any parents of trans kids or trans people themselves about their genitals and what 
they might be doing with them. But if you do find yourself in some situation or context where you need to refer to this procedure, it is gender confirmation surgery because you are confirming your real, your actual gender. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And um, another word that comes up a lot that is in a similar vein is preferred. Um, And especially this is often used in reference to pronouns. Um, So, and and I understand, I mean, it's better to ask for someone's preferred pronouns to not ask at all. But one thing that, that we're starting to have conversations about and people are becoming more aware of is that the word preferred implies that it's just a preference and that, you know, if, if, if I'm a trans woman, my preferred pronouns might be she, her, but you couldn't be blamed for misgendering me and using he, him, because those are like my real pronouns in some sense. And then I have these fake preferred pronouns. So I think that's how a lot of trans people, I mean, that's at least how I've perceived the word preferred. And I think Thankfully, some cis people are starting to become aware of that, and it's becoming more common for people to just ask for your pronouns, which is both easier because it's less words to say and just because it doesn't imply something different about the pronouns of a trans person. Yeah. And as a cis person, I also want to add to that by saying, by sharing a little story that I was at a workshop recently and they, you know, to their credit, they had everybody, every time they spoke up, say, my name is, my name is Bridget and my pronouns are she, her. And that's, we're seeing that a lot more. So we need to be aware of these situations. And I think that I was happy to see that happen. And what I was happy about was everybody did it and nobody rolled their eyes or made a big deal about it. And especially, you know, the people who appear to be cisgender, I always wonder, like, are they thinking, well, it's obvious. Why do I have to say this? It's so important for everybody to say it because as a cisgender person, me acknowledging that it is important to clarify my pronouns is making it clear that I know that that's important for everybody to do and that, you know, that I may appear to be cisgender. Maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm non-binary and I, I want to say my pronouns are they, them. So it's important for everybody But what I noticed started happening, and these are people who, you know, folks who I know really want to be allies, is people would say strange things like, I'm a she, her. My name is Mary, and I'm a she, her, instead of my pronouns are she, her. And it was just so jarring to me. And I know it's just because I'm in this world with you, Jackie, where we're talking about these things all the time. But I don't know if you hear people say things like that, or this was just a weird kind of instance, because I know they met well, but it was like, that just felt so strange to me and felt dehumanizing. Like I'm a she, her, like it's a a thing you are, like I'm a, you are a person, you're a human being. So please, my, I know I'm going on, but the, the simple thing I want to say here is if you're ever in a situation where you're asked to show your pronouns, just say, my name is Bridget and my pronouns are she, her. What do you think, Jackie? Have you seen anything like that? Yeah, I, I don't identify as a she, her, but I do use the <laughs> pronoun she, her. And <laughs> I think this is also like, I, I don't know, I've heard that used a lot in re- reference to people who use they, them pronouns, like, oh, there are they, them. And that's kind of weird. And I, I yeah, yeah, like generally adding like an A or a the in front of something can make it sound a little bit weirder, like. I'm transgender versus, or you're transgender versus you are a transgender or, right. I, I don't know, it just feels, it's a small difference, but it just feels weird to add that. Exactly. Exactly. So it's simple. My name is Bridget and my pronouns are she, her. That's it. And they're not 
preferred pronouns. Nope, they're not correct pronouns. They're not anything. They're just my pronouns. All these recommendations involve saying fewer words. Right. <laughs> it should be easier. Exactly. We're telling you exactly. Should be easier, one would think. Okay. So we've talked about these before, but in this context, it is definitely worth repeating some of the things. These are the ones that I hear all the time, more often than not, from parents who have just found out that their kid came out or just found out that their kid is trans or non-binary. Well, one or that I heard fluid. from you and one that I heard from you and dad. Yeah. Now it's a, it's hard to even remember because it was over five years ago, but I know and I'm horrified that I did say these things, right? It's a phase. Please don't use the word phase. It could it be a phase or even well-meaning friends asking the parent or asking the transgender person, well, couldn't it just be a phase? There is no such thing as a transgender phase. One is transgender or one is not transgender. And it's incredibly hurtful because think about all that it takes to come. Jackie's talked about this. All that it takes to come to terms with and understand that you are transgender and then to communicate it and have the courage to say it out loud often to people who are clueless like we were and don't understand and aren't going to respond well it's not a phase. How could it be a phase? It's usually something that the person's been grappling with for a very long time. So don't use the word phase. It's not a phase. Yeah, I think that's right. And another similar thing that is, you know, I think trivializing the trans experience is, is attention. And I know this is related a lot to like, this feels very related, at least to me, to like the internet and social media and parents and people who are a little bit older having a certain idea about younger generations about, oh, they just want attention and that's the in thing to be trans. So they just want to, you know, go with the trend. And I think that that is really just lacks any understanding of how hard it is to be trans and how hard it is to transition and all of the obstacles that come with that. And I don't think that any attention that anyone might get for being trans is worth how hard it is to be trans. I think that that's, I can't think of any trans people I know who that was their motivator for transitioning. I think trans people generally transition because it sucks to experience that incongruence between how your body works and how you, other people perceive you and all of those things. I don't think anyone does it for the attention. Exactly. So please Well, I've heard this so much from more parents than not when they first, you know, find out, really, really think about how illogical it is, how it doesn't make any sense. This is not something that anybody would do for attention. And along those lines, uh, something like the word confused. My kid is confused about their gender. And, and I, what I sometimes see happening here is that sometimes a young person is is kind of grappling with coming to terms with what their identity is and actually having to find vocabulary that they can use to explain that to other people. And that is not necessarily confusion on their part or a flaw on their part or something that they're just willingly or willfully being difficult about, right? It's like, oh, I hear this a lot again from parents like, well, last week my kids said they were non-binary and this week they're saying they're trans, they're a female, they're trans femme or whatever it might be. 
maybe they're trying to figure it out. Maybe the only problem here is living in a world that has put them into a very limited box from birth that doesn't even really exist in the in the very diverse, complex spectrum that is gender and gender identity and gender expression. So saying my kid is confused, I think really simplifies it and puts blame on the young person, right? Or I think my partner is confused about their gender identity. Suddenly, you know, I've always known them as a man. And now suddenly my partner's saying, you know, that they might feel that they're a woman, you know? So I don't know how you feel about this one, Jackie, but I don't feel like using the word confused is helpful to anybody involved. I think the only time the word confused is appropriate is a queer person using it to describe what they are currently experiencing. I don't think it's mm-hmm. right for people to decide whether other people are confused. I think it's one thing to be like, oh, someone's confused about directions for how to get from right. that place. <laughs> right. It's like something that is a clear, like objective thing. But to say someone is confused about something as deeply personal as their gender identity is to claim that you know their own right. life better than they do, which is just not possible. Right. So since we're trying to offer alternatives, why not just say my child is figuring out their gender identity? They're on a journey. It can be a lifelong journey of figuring it out. And I support them and I'm here if they want to talk to me about it. And if it changes, that's great because they're probably just getting more clarity on, you know, how they see themselves. And why not just support them in saying they're figuring out who they are. We do we do that with like careers, right? Jackie, you changed what you thought your career path was going to be, right? I didn't say like, oh, you're confused and you're lost and you, you know, you said you were going to be this and now you're like, I'm not equating that to gender identity, but I'm just saying, I think as parents, it's our job to support our kids on their journey of discovery in life as far as what, who they are and how they live their lives. And it's not something you have figured out ever fully. So how about the, how about passing? Tell us about that. Passing is a good one. The thing that I wrote in the notes was like, some trans people want to pass, some don't, some don't care. Passing, I think is very subjective and some transphobes will, one thing that I find really funny is like some people will go out of their way to try to clock people, which means like to tell if they're trans or not. Um, and sometimes <laughs> if you're, if you're transphobic enough and you're doing that obsessively enough, I mean, one, you might be trans, but that's a whole other episode we could do that. But also I've, you know, it's sometimes a transphobic person will look at a cis person and be like, Oh, you have a certain bone structure. Your voice sounds a certain way and you must be trans. And I, I think that just goes to show how subjective it is you know it's like you cannot tell universally by looking at someone what chromosomes they have or what genitals they have or what reproductive organs they do or don't have like that's just one not possible from a medical standpoint and two not really a productive or healthy exercise in terms of like having healthy relationships with other people I think so yeah for cis people I mean Passing is obviously something that a lot of trans women and trans people will concern ourselves with. And that's a thing for us to deal with and talk about. But like, if you're a cis person, unless a trans person has initiated a conversation about passing, I would just try to avoid bringing up passing. It's probably not going to go go super well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is as a cisgender person, it's not a word that I feel in any way entitled to use or that I would use in any way or that I would refer to it. And I think I've shared with you, Jackie, that I had an experience kind of early on after you came out where I 
spoke to a trans woman who was working in a store I was in and I acknowledged that she was trans and was so excited and said, my daughter's trans. And she basically told me I ruined her day. And I, I felt so incredibly awful. And she said, Oh, I thought I looked good when I walked out of the house this morning, but you, you could tell, huh? And I just, my heart just sank and I, I really learned my lesson and I apologized profusely. And I tried to say, no, I was just excited because I'm an ally and my, my daughter's trans and boy, did I learn my lesson. So, and I know there are people listening who probably have done that or would do something like that. Please don't do it. Yeah. I've got, I've gotten that a few times. (laughs) No, more than a few times. Yeah, I, I get that. But, you know, yeah, don't do that. If you can help yourself, please don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so talk to us about the term gender dysphoria. This is a controversial one, Jackie. Tell us what you think. Because, oh, and well, let me just set it up by saying this one I put on the list because I saw an Instagram post that basically said, don't use the term gender dysphoria anymore. It's harmful. It's hurtful. It kind of pathologizes being transgender and focuses on, it makes it seem like a mental illness or a disorder. And, you know, but I know you have some different thoughts on that. So, so tell us. Well, I would, I would say it's similar to passing in that, like, if you're a cis person, unless a trans person has brought it up to you, I would try to avoid talking about dysphoria um because it's just like not your thing to bring up I guess it's the way I would describe it so gender dysphoria is loosely defined as feeling bad feeling like stress and overall unhappiness and discomfort as a result of a disconnect between your gender identity and the way you would like to be perceived the body you would like to have and the you know what you are currently experiencing and so Dysphoria can be treated via social transition, medical transition, some combination thereof. And in the DSM, dysphoria is currently what is identified as a condition in the DSM that you can be diagnosed with. And you can then go to your healthcare provider and say, hey, I have gender dysphoria, therefore I need hormones or surgery or whatever it is that I need. And that is an update from what was originally in the DSM, which was gender identity disorder, which was kind of like saying that to be trans is a mental illness. And I don't think that was right. And I am glad that they updated that. They updated that in 2013. They dropped the term gender identity disorder from the fifth edition of the DSM, which stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And so I understand why a lot of trans people have feelings about gender dysphoria being in the DSM, like it is hard to avoid the idea that that is pathologizing or or stigmatizing being trans. But I also think that it's important to note that the diagnosis was created to help people with gender dysphoria get access to necessary health care and effective treatment. The term focuses on discomfort as the problem rather than identity. And I think that that's an important distinction. I think it would be great if we, you know, could have a world where, I mean, everybody deserves the mental health care that they need. I think that people who are receiving mental health care have a right and have an active role in defining the way that those conditions that they're diagnosed with are described. But I do think that in our current medical system, at least like here in the United States, it is helpful to have a diagnosis to get care that is covered by health insurance or otherwise available to you. So 
I do believe in informed consent. I don't believe that people should have to get letters from doctors and all of those things. But I also do think it's helpful to have medical professional writing books that say, you know, if you have this feeling, if you have gender dysphoria, the appropriate treatment is to get hormones or get surgery if that's or socially transition, if that's what you feel is appropriate for you. And so I think that that's a tough balance to strike. Yeah. So there's a lot in what you're saying. I mean, one thing to pull out is, you know, for medical professionals and in the DSM, it can be helpful because it's going to help you with access to the the care that you need, the mental health care and any transition needs that you may have. But for everyday cis people like me, I probably don't need to be talking about or asking about trans people's gender dysphoria, right? Because it's kind of a pathologizing, problematic term. It's like an uncomfortable thing to talk about. Like, yeah. I, I can't right. speak for all trans people, but in my experience, I would prefer if people did not ask me about gender dysphoria and mm-hmm. I would prefer to only talk about it in settings where I choose to bring it up mm-hmm. if ever. <laughs> and, right. and so I think that that's an important boundary respect just from the standpoint of like, you wouldn't ask people about other things that are very personal that might make them uncomfortable without their feeling like they were okay with you bringing it up, you know? So that's, that's just an important boundary to respect with trans people. Exactly. Right. That makes perfect sense to me. And, but I also wanted to ask you about Jackie that how you, I remember telling you telling me very early on that you and your therapist would talk about OPD, other people's dysphoria. And that was really impactful for me to understand if you could share that and like kind of, you know, the contrast of that of like, maybe gender, what we see as gender dysphoria wouldn't even exist or be what it is if it weren't for other people. The problem is other people's reactions to the transgender person coming out and transitioning. So I want us to look at that briefly. Can you clarify that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a theory, I guess. It's hard to prove, like you can't prove it empirically, but I think it's the idea that if other people do not react as negatively to trans people and their feelings about our identities and our transitions, um, either we would not experience as much discomfort as we do, we would not experience as much dysphoria or as we do, or in its most extreme version, which I don't necessarily agree with, we wouldn't experience any of that at all. And I think that there's probably a, a balance there where there's always going to be some degree to which people want to socially and medically transition in ways that differ from what they were assigned at birth. But I agree that if people were not being, you know, assigned, if you take this to its most extreme form and people were not being assigned a gender at birth, then there would be a lot less OPD and you would probably have trans people who are a lot more comfortable with themselves overall. But that, that I don't know that that would eliminate the need for any hormones or surgeries or anything like that. I think that would, those things would probably still be necessary. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to envision a world we don't know because we can't even envision a world where everybody is educated and knowledgeable and accepting and affirming, right? But we, but I think we can see seeds of how that could be more the case when we look at families, you know, younger parents, maybe gay parents who, when their kid comes out as trans, it's like celebratory and we're, we're so happy for you that you are embracing who you are and are telling the world who you are. And clearly in those cases, there is far less of that discomfort that you're talking about and distress. 
Well, and in and in a world where everyone was educated and everyone was supportive of trans people, then trans people generally probably would transition earlier in life, which is like a theme that we've talked about on other episodes about how people realize they're trans and being exposed to trans experiences at a young age. And and so I think that that's not a coincidence that when you ask trans people, what's the regret? The regret is always I didn't transition sooner. Um, and I can, again, can only speak for myself, but I would probably be more comfortable with myself had I been able to transition sooner. And I, I imagine that that is, you know, part of this, this OPD theory. So I think there's, there's something to that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jackie. So I'm looking at our notes and I, I see you put a lot of extra work in on this topic, which really could be a whole separate episode, but I want you to at least give us a little bit on it because it's so important and it's so related to this discussion of words, and that is gendered workplaces, workspaces, transphobic workspaces, spaces where trans people are not affirmed through language and systems and structures of the organization. And it's very relevant and timely, in fact, with examples from exactly what we're seeing going on in the world of the media. So tell us a little bit about these gendered workspaces. And I also want to let everybody know before you launch into it, that Jackie wrote an excellent article called Confronting Gendered Workspaces on my company blog, my Samson Coaching and Communication website blog. So we're going to include the link to that website. We're going to include the link to that article that Jackie wrote that was very well received. And she did a fabulous job with, uh, Make sure you find the link to that article right here in the show notes or the description. So can you tell us a little bit, kind of give us a little bit of an overview of that, Jackie? Yeah. So I, I start, I think this was related insofar as there were some words that hurt that were referenced about an anecdote that I started the article with where I was, I was working on a campaign, a political campaign. I was misgendered while training a batch of volunteers. And I, that was just one example of countless times in my career that I've had to brush off being misgendered or otherwise made uncomfortable because I know it would make the cis person who said that thing that made me uncomfortable even more uncomfortable if I brought it up. It is the protection of that fragility, especially among white cisgender men who still occupy a lot of key leadership roles in most industries that I think disadvantages women, trans people, and people of color. For example, in my experience, there has been a lot more space to share your emotions and how certain things make you feel in women-led workspaces. That's not to say that feelings are prioritized over productivity or outcomes. In fact, I think that feeling seen and valued as a human being is a powerful motivator for many people. And the women I've worked for have accomplished far more than the men I've worked for thus far, which I don't think is a coincidence. And so... On the other hand, in many workplaces led by cis men, I think that expressing any emotion can be seen as a vulnerability and admitting in any way that your productiveness is tied to your overall mental health is to concede a fatal flaw. This is not the case. I think there's a lot of good exceptions out there. This is not the case for every cis cis male-led workspace. But in general, I think there's this pervasive attitude, especially in certain industries, that our, our bodies and our minds are just tools that we have to master to accomplish bigger, greater things. This is kind of exemplified by Elon Musk's call for Twitter employees to go hardcore and bringing bedrooms into the building that are actually illegal. And the Department of Building Inspection is now, I think, going to be citing them for it. So 
these dynamics, you know, layered on the deep wealth and opportunity gaps between men and women, particularly cis white men and queer and trans women of color, perpetuate existing inequities in various industries. I think that Me Too was an important first step toward confronting the status quo, but we have a long, long way to go, as evidenced by the disproportionately low numbers of women and people of color leading major companies, being elected to public office, and otherwise being elevated to positions of power and leadership. And you don't have to believe us. I understand that sounds like a lot, might to some people sound like a lot of social justice crap, but the numbers are irrefutable. For example, 24 out of 100 seats in the U.S. Senate are currently occupied by women, and 9 out of 50 governor seats in the U.S. are occupied by women. This trend of drastic underrepresentation has persisted pretty much as long as I've been alive and reflects a male-dominated society that doesn't afford women equal opportunities to run for office. And even when we do elevate women to positions of statewide leadership, uh, we elect even fewer to positions of executive leadership because you've got 24 out of 100 in the Senate and only nine out of 50 in governor seats. Those governor seats are roles traditionally perceived as requiring strong masculine leadership devoid of any susceptibility to emotional appeals. This is why it's important to be aware of gender dynamics in your workplace. Are emotions viewed as a weakness? Are women, people of color, and queer people required to tolerate language or behavior that makes them uncomfortable? While we may not always be in a position to change these dynamics without risking our employment, and that's always a terrible thing to have to balance, it is important to be aware of them at the very least and to try to confront them whenever possible and to always do better if and when we find ourselves in positions of leadership. Now everybody hopefully can see why I think that that could be a whole podcast episode in itself. We might come back to that. <laughs> Maybe like when I'm old and retired and I can tell specific <laughs> stories about oh, you know, workplaces. Well, no, I, the thing I will say is I've been lucky in that the men I've worked for have overall been pretty good, but there are some men out there who I have, who I have crossed paths with in some positions of, you know, of not insignificant power who... Mm-hmm can be awful in some ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you're and in a real. in an area and in a field where people tend to be pretty well educated and knowledgeable and liberal and I can only imagine and even still you've been subjected to all of this and all kinds of inequities and I can only imagine what workplaces are like in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. Yeah, no, if, if I'm still seeing, you know, misogyny and racism in, in workplaces in San Francisco, it's like, uh-oh, I can only imagine what it's like in a lot of the rest of the country. So Exactly, exactly. So, in, in fact, there's some great organizations like Trans Can Work and folks out there doing a lot of work around this to open up the work world and the the um, education and the conversation around how to have trans-inclusive workplaces and environments. And so that's something I really would like to dive into deeper. And probably we can invite a guest to, who can really get us started in a deeper conversation on that. But I think it's important that we at least touched on it today. So we're going to wrap up and say thank you very much for listening. And now you know some everyday words that you probably use every day, choice and change and phase and attention and perfectly fine words in most contexts, but we would urge you to just completely stay away from them in any 
in any discussion about a trans person's experience, those and all the rest that we've discussed. And as Jackie shared so eloquently, I think, and with so much backing, we have a long, long way to go in creating workplaces that are equitable and respectful and inclusive and affirming of LGBTQ people and especially transgender non-binary people. So we'll no doubt talk more about that, but we thank you for being with us for this conversation and for all of your support. Please sign up to be a member in our Patreon membership and or take a look at our How to Be an Ally video, which is on Vimeo. The links are always here and we so appreciate you sharing those as widely as you can. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our Transgender School podcast. We hope you learned something new and that you're inspired to learn more. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And please be sure to check out our website, transgenderschool.org. You'll find many valuable resources there, including news about upcoming courses we'll be teaching. Make sure to join us for future podcast episodes. We'll catch you on the first Tuesday of every month. 